Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse. The fifth column. Column. column this is Camille column, Foster of Freethink. No, Moynihan and Welch are not joining me this week, but they will be back very soon. Don't worry. Instead, I am delighted to be able to share a conversation that I recorded with two other chaps. And this is easily among my favorite conversations that I've had the privilege of being able to share on this podcast. I'll say more about why in a moment. But first, the conversation is between myself, Thomas Chatterton Williams, who is a returning guest on this podcast, is a contributor at The Atlantic. He is a visiting professor at Bard College, where he is a senior fellow at the Hannah Arendt Center. And Adam Davidson, who is a first-time guest on the podcast, Adam is a grizzled media veteran. Adam has done stints at the New York Times. He's a contributor at The New Yorker. And Adam is perhaps best known, certainly best known to me, as the co-creator of the legendary Planet Money show on NPR. We had a great conversation about race and privilege, about all kinds of other interesting related things, uh, a really fascinating aside about uh, Hayek and Keynes, actually. But what made the conversation so special to me isn't just the quality of my interlocutors or the substantive nature of the discussion. If I'm honest, I'd probably have to say that it earns that distinction in, in large part because of just how novel something like this is. This was a, a Twitter beef, really inauspicious beginning. I didn't know Adam. I didn't follow Adam. We disagreed pretty strenuously. My response to him was actually pretty pointed. So was Thomas's. So were his replies. But somewhere along the way, we found ourselves in a situation where Thomas was suggesting that we should all talk. And Adam was agreeing. And in short order, we scheduled something and we had a date and a time picked and we got together and it was pretty phenomenal. So here's the context you need before you hear the actual conversation. Adam wrote a really succinct tweet. It amazes me that any straight white dudes don't see the privilege we have. It's not subtle. That is the whole tweet. It's not inflammatory. It's not obnoxious. But I thought it was wrong. And it was generating plenty of engagement, which probably annoyed me. So I replied. You'll get the substance of my reply to that post in the course of the podcast. And I don't know that I need to really tell you much more, except that I suspect plenty of you feel the way that I do, that in general, you're quite frustrated by the fact that it seems like people who strenuously disagree with one another aren't actually having conversations. That when a post like that goes up, you may reply, but you're probably not going to get a reply. The likes will pour in. Sometimes there's a ratio, but it doesn't ever feel like that actually advances the ball. It feels like there was a time when one could reliably expect there to be an actual hashing out of differences in some venue, not just dueling editorials in completely different publications for completely different audiences. I think even on a podcast like ours, we try our best to give you diverse perspectives. But the truth is that a lot of people aren't interested in talking to people that have differences of opinion with them. And that's frustrating. 
and I think it's probably worse than frustrating. Um, it's it's probably a very pitiful sign of the kind of health of our discourse and the polity in general. I hope that that changes. And I think I'm starting to see signs that it is. But in either case, I'm delighted that we were able to have this conversation. And I'm really, really delighted to be able to share it with you. The fifth column. So Adam, maybe I throw to you first. And maybe you could frame it up for us and tell us what privilege means to you. And perhaps give us your perspective on, on why you suspect a post like that earned so much backlash. Every now and then I'll have a tweet where I'm like, oh, this is going to get a lot of impact. And then sometimes they do, a lot of times they don't. And then sometimes I just send something offhand. I was at my son's basketball coaching. I was sitting there, I was kind of bored. There was some tweet that was going around, some white guy in Britain, basically feeling sorry for himself, talking about how rich he is, how successful he is. And now people want to say that he has to be aware of other people or something. It, it just was, to me, it was like a parody of that perspective. So I just wrote this tweet. Like it was, it was not a big thought. It was not, uh, actually, my son is really anti me tweeting. He, he feels like it takes <laughs> me away from him because I get in these fights and I disappear. And if I was thinking of anything, it was like, I don't want to have a big blow up. Like that's what I don't want. And, you know, I guess that was the context in which I sent it out. And Thomas, this is where you and I had a little back and forth. Only two or three times in my life, I know there are other people who experience this a lot, I really got an onslaught of white nationalist, anti-Semitic tweets. I just did. And I think you, Thomas, maybe, and some other people were like, oh, you say everyone you disagree with is a white nationalist. I was like, no, no, I'm saying the white nationalists are white. I mean, it really was like a lot of people, like you're, you're a Jew, you don't have you don't qualify as a white person. You can't. And, um, you know, the white race controls America. They should have privilege, you know, really to me anyway, vile stuff. I also, in my direct messages, which were open at the time, I got two explicit death threats, like one simply, I will kill you. And another, like your condemnation of the white race will not go unpunished. Trust me, Zion. And, and just a lot of stuff. One person was like, he lives in a small town in Vermont. I remember when, when I was in Iraq, but also as a journalist over the years, there's been like trainings and stuff. And I remember one of the trainings was death threats are usually meaningless. But if they're, the more specific they are, the more. So saying I'm going to kill you is pretty meaningless. But saying I'm going to kill you and I know where you live is scarier. And saying I'm going to kill you and you live on you know, 16th street is scarier still. And I'm going to kill you tomorrow at two o'clock and come to your house on 16th street. And here's a picture of your kid. That's when you really do for sure. Call the police and go into hiding. So I, none of this was genuinely scary, but it was very unpleasant. I mean, really unpleasant. And so in that context, like Thomas, your main critique of me was that I wasn't engaging a few of the people of color who were responding, but I, I felt like maybe you weren't taking in, you know, it had something like 7,000 responses <laughs> and I, you know, Twitter's weird. I use TweetDeck. I don't quite know how they decide which responses to show you, but that was the main thing happening for me afterwards was just, oh, wow. It's gotten around a really ugly part of the internet and this is not fun. And it, moved from critiquing me to being an object 
for group cohesion and group, you know, it started becoming, yeah. let's, let's use our response to this tweet to remind each other what our values are, which are Jews are not white, white people should be privileged, you know, kind of ugly things. So in that mind yeah. frame, it was, it was not top of mind, like, oh, let me have an constructive discussion with some people. You know, it was <laughs> like, fuck, do I have to, sorry, can I? That's fine. <laughs> do I have to like move, like, do I have to worry about my family? Do I have to like move? And I didn't feel like I did, but I had to think, you know, if you have to think about that. Like I've, I've been a very low level in the public eye for a long time and I've maybe had five or six death threats, but two of them came that day. I mean, you know, that that's, it's not fun. It's not pleasant. Like that's a violent experience. I, I don't, I don't, we don't have to get into the words are violence. You know, I'm not sure I think words are violence, but I think saying I'm going to kill you is, is feels <laughs> like, um, so anyway, mm -hmm. so I can, I'm very happy to get into the sentiment and the thoughts and how I define privilege. I'm eager to get into that, but I, just to give that context where you're sort of having this onslaught and then some people are like, wait, why aren't you having a grown up conversation about this? Which I respect. I'm glad I'm excited to have that grown up conversation, but it is really an intense experience. I think there are people like Taylor Lorenz or whatever. There's people who experience this all day, every day leaving. I like Taylor, but leaving aside whatever you think of, you know, I know there are people who literally all day, every day, I'm going to rape you. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to, Mm -hmm. For me, it's rare enough that it stands out. And then there's lots of people who never have experienced it. Yeah. Before we get into the subject matter, I mean, it's really, it's interesting to have that context because it's the way that Twitter's built to work is like, I saw the tweet because I see Camille's response to it and like what you're going through as the uh, original poster, that's all veiled from everybody else. And it's true that you have no idea what that person is going through sitting at their son's basketball game. I mean, I've been, I'm not, Taylor Lorenz with it, but I've been through that a few times and it feels like you're not built to have a thousand people yelling at you at one time. Like it feels so extreme. And I have had that situation where people are like, why didn't you respond to this thing? You're dodging the point. And it's like, mm -hmm. man, there are so many responses <laughs> that you, you have no idea. Um, so yeah. I really, I really do understand that. And that's why this took a very unusual turn for Twitter where I saw Camille's tweet and I thought about it a little bit and I was doing something with my family and then I, I you know, I thought better of, of getting involved in an argument that I don't need to get involved in. And then I just, you know, I just tweeted out a response and Adam kind of responded to me and said something like, um, if you were really like interested in having a real conversation, I would, but you're just like, you're not engaging in good faith. And then I thought, you know, I would like to have a conversation about this actually. And then, and then he said, okay, I would too. And, and that almost never happens. And so I just want to start out by saying that I really appreciate that. And then in all of the subsequent interactions and starting talking today, it's just like, I imagine just, you know, this isn't maybe the podcast people are hoping for, but I imagine we agree on like so much and we have like very similar um, goals, which is, which is a society that actually transcends a lot of the um, racial trauma that's uh, that's inflected it for centuries. I think we all want to get to this better place, and we're having some pointed disagreement in very limited tweets about what the best path towards that better future would be. But I want to start that way, and I want to say that you know, I was trying to be specific in saying that I know that you don't. What you were saying is not um, the way that Richard Spencer said it to me, because I did interview him, and I left that interview feeling 
genuinely nauseated. I know that's not what <laughs> where you're coming from, but there is a kind of thing that I, I take very seriously from Albert Murray, which is that however you arrive at it, when whiteness is fundamentally like a privilege to have in a superior state and blackness is like a disability or, or non-whiteness is a kind of disability, even if you mean that we need to repair that, it still kind of reinforces a kind of racial hierarchy that counteracts the kind of progress we all hope to make. And it can be arrived at maliciously or benevolently. Yeah. And that, that is a point that kind of caught me in my tracks. And I'm honestly not sure how to think about it other than I want to think about it. And I'm excited to talk to you more about it. Um, I was glad you also didn't threaten to kill me if I didn't take that in. So, <laughs> yeah. um, so but, I, but I hear you. I mean, I, you know, I was thinking in thinking about this conversation, some of the perspectives I have, like one perspective I have is I was a foreign correspondent for a while and lived in the Middle East. I've spent a lot of time in other countries. I speak Hebrew and Arabic okay. And in other countries like Iraq, where I spent a lot of time, you know, it's just stand, it, it wouldn't be controversial to talk about what life is like for a Sunni, what life is like for a Shia, what life is like for a Kurd. And it gets more specific than that. Like the Shia, you know, there's very, well, the same with the Sunni, but there's like very, there's kind of urbane, educated, cosmopolitan folks. There's village folks. Which village you're from has a big impact. And you really can draw a lot of conclusions. Not all conclusions, but you meet somebody and just their accent, like, you know, I used to crack my Iraqi staff up because I learned a few words of what they call Shagawi, which is like, I don't know, speaking with a deep Southern accent or something. It's the most rural <laughs> kind of Iraqi and no Ajanib, no foreigners, no white people speak that. And so I still, actually, there's some Iraqis here in Vermont. I like going up to them and saying, hey, which cracks them up. It's like no one. Um, and, and, there is, you know, there's been a few movements in Iraq, for example, mostly associated with communism, because that's how it works. It, it has worked as a kind of counter nationalist trend in the in the Middle East. Um, around, well, let's not do that. Let's let's be, let's not care what people's background is. Let's imagine, you know, and 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 there was actually weirdly under Saddam, there was a, a long period where Sunni and Shia, the cosmopolitan technocratic class were able to shed that baggage, but it really was structural and the collapse of Iraq showed how structural it is. That's a super long digression and I hope that wasn't too boring. But I realized like that 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 is both can be a useful frame. Like, you know, you live in Paris, you have, you know, people are going to talk about, you know, someone who was born and raised in Paris is very different from someone who's from a village. And it, when, you know, people talk about the banlieue or which banlieue, they, it has a, a lot of resonance. And so I guess what I'm saying is there's like a positive in the sense that uh, uh, academics use it, like just a factual or not even factual, just a like, oh, here's a way to understand a place. Like it, it would be <laughs> weird to do like a description of Iraq or even a, a description of any individual in Iraq without calling on these really specific, their historic ethnic background. Um, but that also reinforces it. I mean, I agree. It, it does reinforce it. And when are you describing a phenomenon that you see? And when are you creating or 
co-creating the phenomenon you see? I mean, that that's a deep question. And I think I thought I was doing the first and you were saying, well, you're also doing the second. And, and that is a big thought for me. Um, I don't, I don't know where to go with that right at this very second. I think a lot of good, decent people, and, and I'll say on the left, but it's not necessarily just on the left, have become very concerned that we don't talk about and think about race sufficiently, that we need to do more of it in order to recognize kind of historic problems, in order to better understand the way that we relate to one another, in order to better understand our institutions, in order to, to make progress in the world. And I can appreciate why someone would think that we, we don't do enough of it. I can appreciate why someone would, would be worried that, that there's kind of an insufficient amount of, of race concern. I think what has happened, though, is there are very few people curious about what it might look like if there is over-concern about these issues, if we are too fixated on race, who in many instances imagine that this is kind of an impossibility. Thomas and I agree on lots of things and disagree on a number of things, but among the things that we agree on most strenuously is that a disproportionate focus on race can have real damage. We need analogies. We need to generalize about things. It's how we navigate a complex world. But at the same time, once those analogies, once those generalizations become essential and totalizing, there are all kinds of perverse things that can happen there. And I think when I encounter a lot of modern sentiments about like privilege and white supremacy and whiteness and capital B blackness, I see that really unhealthy dynamic playing out. And it's the reason why when I see a post like yours, I respond with, and it's been mentioned a couple of times, so I'll just read it. I'm confident Adam enjoys zero privileges in italics that would be of any interest to me. The presumption that race, gender, sexuality generally obviate the infinity of relative disadvantages and advantages in any individual's life is beyond ridiculous. It's also functionally bigoted. Now, that's perhaps a little verbose. Um, no, but I, I, I thought it was the single it. most impactful comment I read. I mean, it, it is a big, it is a big idea and a good idea. Well, I, I appreciate that. And, and again, I, we talked about it a moment ago, and I want to return to, to definitions here because for me, like privilege, I know the kind of life that I've lived, um, the specific experiences that I've had. A moment ago, when you were talking about your experience in the Middle East and, and Iraq in particular, you said at some point folks suggested, you know, maybe what we should do is get away from worrying about one another's backgrounds. And that's just it. It's not so much that we don't worry about one another's backgrounds. It's that we genuinely worry about one another's backgrounds. Something I've said a number of times recently is that we, if we fail to see each other as individuals, we fail to see each other at all. And in my lifetime, it feels like we've moved away from a goal of colorblindness as an objective. And I, I have complicated feelings about that as a goal. Um, to color proud is actually a phrase that I saw used in like a Sesame Street program recently, where they said that what they want to do is to try to raise color proud children. And I, I suspect it's pride for some children and in other cases, a little bit of shame and self-awareness. But I think Thomas and I both agree that there's, there's something beyond that. And it's giving appropriate 
respect and attention to the dignity of every individual and recognizing the actual complexity of the world that you could be a woman from rural North Carolina who happens to be white and who grows up in a household where there's no love. In fact, there's only like physical abuse and sexual violence where there's poverty and deprivation. And what we actually know is that there are many millions of people in America who happen to be white and are also desperately poor. And I think that a somewhat slavish and oftentimes thoughtless devotion to talking about things with respect to averages has led us to a place where when we talk about poverty, we worry about relative rates of white poverty and black poverty as if any individual person facing poverty in America, their circumstances are worsened or better because some greater proportion of people who happen to look like them isn't or is impoverished as well. And there's just something that strikes me as obviously absurd about that. And in all our efforts to do good, like the pendulum is just swung in a really weird direction that makes it impossible for us to have serious conversations about these things. So I've said a lot there, and I, I would invite you, Adam or Thomas, to respond to any bit of it you want. But I do think that, that it would probably be useful to talk a little bit about some of these, these terms like privilege and white supremacy. I'd love to just jump in quickly on how difficult and complicated it is also to quantify privilege in a given person's family or an individual's life, because there's certainly what you said, Camille, I think oftentimes when we talk about privilege, um, we do think, you know, in terms of poverty is worse than material plenty. But mm -hmm. some of the poorest and saddest people I ever met in my life was once I went to an elite university, and I met some mm -hmm. well-to-do white people that were different than the ethnic white people I grew up around. And I felt I ended up feeling sorry for some of those people. And I ended up feeling quite privileged in relation to them because we didn't have much money growing up. But that discipline and that seriousness and the tight-knittedness of the family when you know that your father is doing everything he can to provide for you and, and he's there with your mother every night mm. and he's not going out and just allowing, having extra money to, I guess, distract him from, from being there with you and loving you and teaching you about how real the world is. And then those lessons that he gave you about how real and how, how serious life is allowed you to go out into the world and go a bit farther than he was able to because circumstances of race and, and material lack had held him back. I don't know how to quantify that in relation to somebody who's parents were both distracted lawyers, not really home with them, raised by nannies, and they had no student loan debt, but they didn't have that thing that made them snap when they got out in the world and approach it with the tenacity that, that I was lucky enough that my family gave to me. I don't know how to speak about that outside of the context of the individual. And so it's very difficult for me to look at somebody and think that I feel underprivileged in relation to them. And then when I think about, I have a family that has descended from Europe and family that's descended from Africa and slavery. And when I compare some of the members of my family who are descendants of slaves and some of the members of my family who are descended from Europeans, I don't always think that the European descended family members have anything over my dad, for example. Um, they certainly often can't go in all of the rooms that I can go in. So it's just very difficult for me to think that 
I can approach a question of privilege without sometimes feeling upset when a Ibram X. Kendi or Robin D'Angelo puts me in the box of, of, of lat when, when I feel very proud about what my family and I have been able to, to accomplish given the circumstances and the serendipity of life and the vicissitudes of fate that we all deal with. Yeah. I mentioned I'm Jewish. My mom grew up in Israel and I'm 100% Jewish on her side, but my dad's family is what they call Swamp Yankee, which is like New England for white trash. And, um, <laughs> and I've, you know, cousins are really, really poor. I wrote a piece for the New York Times Magazine a few years ago about my family in Worcester, Mass. And, and they really, I think, embody... Well, I want to read that. Yeah. If you just look Adam Davidson, Worcester, it'll come up. But it, I feel like my family is almost a perfect embodiment of the pain that blue collar white people <laughs> suffered in the 20th century that, that for the first, say, three quarters or so, you know, from, you know, roughly the 1880s to the 1970s, and not just for white people, but for lots of people, there was kind of a wind at your back towards the middle, like moving from deep poverty to, to beyond sustenance. And my family really tracks that very well, the immigrant Jews and the Swamp Yankee folks. And then for a lot of them, it just, the bottom fell out. And, and you know, that part of my family there, some are quite successful, but some are in and out of prison, in and out of homeless shelters. I mean, really, I'd say, and, and plus have experienced like unimagined, I have these three cousins who were raised in the foster care system. And I mean, they've had the most awful Gothic childhood. I mean, it's, I was going to write a piece about them for mm. the New Yorker and the New Yorker's like, it's too ugly. It's just too, wow. I mean, it is the ugliest childhood I've ever heard of. Like it's hard to even talk about, but I mean, constant rape being raised in dog cages. I mean, it's the most awful. Jeez. And I do associate that in part. I mean, they, they were raised clearly by mentally ill people, but also with you know, all of central Massachusetts has sort of suffered this similar deindustrialization, competition with trade, et cetera. So th the thing I keep going to, which is like the most boring thing to go to, is the federal funds rate when the Fed raises or lowers interest rates. And this was a big, when I was running Planet Money at NPR, and the whole goal was to make economics accessible and interesting to the average person. And I, I used to joke all the time, like, why did it turn out that bond interest rates are the most important thing in the world? It's like so boring. Um, but it's just a economic truism that the Federal Reserve adjusts the overnight lending rate that banks lend to each other by a quarter of a percent, usually up or down. Now they might go up half a percent, three quarters of a percent. There's virtually no individual who's like, oh, now I'm going to buy a house. They went down by a quarter of a percentage point, or, or now I'm going to get a new great job. Yet it is the biggest impact on what they call the business cycle, the boom and bust, the, the you know, and, and, and that really, for me, when I was learning economics was one of the most interesting things about economics. And one of the most difficult things to talk about is this diffuse impact where you almost can't find an individual. Like, you know, I'm a, this American life, New Yorker guy, I, I like telling a story about a person and it's really hard. Like the Fed changed the Fed funds rate by 25 basis points. It's hard to find the person who's like, my life is totally different now. <laughs> <laughs> Yet all our lives are a little bit different. And I think so some degree to which I think the way I conceive of white privilege is that it's super easy to find lots and lots of case studies where 
other forces are way more important. And probably in every individual, other forces are more important. You know, like mm -hmm. when you think about any major, you know, when you bought a car, when you bought a house, when you switch jobs, like lots of factors were more important than the Fed funds rate. Yet, we just know when the Fed funds rate goes up, fewer houses are bought, fewer cars are bought, fewer new business, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It has a huge measurable impact in aggregate and virtually zero discernible impact in any specific case. So that is one degree in what, in the way I think I conceptualize privilege, that it's like, it'd be trivially easy to find a lot, you know, to lots and lots. I, um, I did have a kind of a Jewish nationalist great uncle, and my mom used to joke about how he'd say, you know, Jews are better, Jews are smarter. And my mom would say, but there's smart Jews and dumb Jews, and there's smart white non-Jews and smart dumb non and he would say, yeah, but our smart Jews are smarter than their smart goyim, and our dumb Jews are smarter than their dumb goyim. And um, <laughs> all I'm saying is it's very easy to, it, this is a thing that if it's measurable, would be measurable in the aggregate. But then that brings up a really key point, as you said, like, you know, are, are there other factors that we should talk about? Yes, of course there are. There's, you know, there is income, there is inherited wealth. There's, we know, I mean, just from the economic standpoint, leaving aside all the important things you said about happiness um, and just satisfaction in life, there, there's a ton of factors that are not evenly distributed. Right. That's for sure. I really like the way that you've used that metaphor about bond rates. And I'm going to keep thinking about that because I really do, to a certain degree, I struggle with abstracting identity because for me, identity is so personal and experience is so individualized that I tend to err on the side of um, the individualistic lens. But of course, um, you make a strong point. And I think, I, think, I think that this is why it's helpful for us to all be talking together and not just like quote tweeting to speak mm -hmm. to people who already come from the same perspective as us, because I wouldn't have learned that if you just tweeted at me so that your followers could, could say that I'm blind to structural factors or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, all I did was open up a perspective. And there's, to this day, a huge debate among macroeconomists about, mm -hmm. well, what is the impact? When is the impact felt? What is the right? I mean, the whole reason why we kind of freak out every six weeks when the folks who set that Fed funds rate meet, because it's not mechanical, it's not obvious. And even though we have the people best positioned with unbelievable data, they still could, you know, create a huge fight in a bar between Nobel Prize level economists over what the impact was. So maybe even if we could theoretically empirically measure privilege, is it 87th on a list of factors <laughs> that rank? Is it, mm -hmm. is it number one or two? Is it are the, can we identify subgroups? Like we could go to Wall Street and find people where the Fed funds rate is a huge impact right away. People who are trading currencies, like right away, if you're trading the dollar versus the yen and that's all you do all day, a 25 basis point move is a massive impact on your life. Um, I just happened to buy an apartment at the moment that there was dollar euro parity and I bought an apartment in Paris. It was like, my individual life was heavily impacted. Um, there is this discussion about whether Jews are actually white and some of the white racists were excluding you from whiteness. Um, and to what extent, um, 
you know, you had been ambivalent in another tweet, I guess, that people were putting side by side about, you know, whether you were white because you were, in fact, Jewish. Do you remember the tweet I'm talking about? There were a lot of those. So I got, I got, I mean, I think <laughs> hundreds of those. But yeah, I, I know I retweeted a couple of them. This is the complexity that I think leads me in Camille's direction of, of like race abolitionism, because how do you actually decide the extent to which you're white or you're Jewish and, and, and where does the privilege begin and end and what type of privileges your grandfather write about that maybe there was something that happened in the history of Jews that allowed you to, because of your experiences, achieve in certain ways in European societies that uh, the descendants of English immigrants in this part of Massachusetts maybe didn't. Uh, mm -hmm. And that has nothing to do with blood and skin, but it has to do with a community's intergenerational trajectory. Yeah. And, you know, there's a big literature on are Jews white? How did they become white? There's both a, sure. like an actual, sure. I would call like responsible literature and then a deep, ugly, you know, where they talk about sure. the JQ. If you see JQ on Twitter, you know, that's like the Jewish question. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, that that's going to be someone I don't want to engage. But, you know, whiteness is obviously, or at least to me, obviously, I'm guessing we would agree is a modern construct. I mean, you don't have to go back too far, you know, my waspy ancestors, even though they were poor, they were poor farmers, they're actually still in Plymouth. Like, it's amazing. My family were on the Mayflower and a whole bunch of them have never left Plymouth, Mass. They're just like, ah, it's pretty wow. nice. But they're not wealthy. Like, you think of Mayflower as like, oh, you must be rich. But that's if you left to do other things. If you just stayed and kept farming while opportunities were elsewhere. Um, <laughs> but they would not recognize an Irishman, certainly, as the same thing that they are. They would barely even recognize an Anglican as the same thing they are. And they certainly wouldn't recognize a Bulgarian or a Hungarian mm -hmm. or a, you right, know, right, and I, right. I remember in the reading academic literature from the 1920s when I was in college that had really specific descriptions of these are the jobs Hungarians can do and these are the jobs Romanians can do. Like the, the fact that we remain, or some people in our society want to keep Jews as excluded from whiteness, I don't personally care about whiteness. You know, that's not my agenda. It's, it's that when people are really curious about Jewish people and their genetic background, I do get nervous. And maybe this is what you're saying to me as well. You're saying to me, you think you're just making an empirical statement, but you're actually making a normative statement, a prescriptive mm -hmm. statement. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to have to think about all this. I don't, I don't know if, how, much, yeah. how many commitments I want to make on, in this podcast, but um, <laughs> we, we won't hold you to all of them. Okay. All right. But, but yeah, on the one hand, there has been obsession for hundreds of years about who are these Jews and what are they up to? And do they have unique special powers, good or evil? Do they have a cultural thing that prizes education? Do they, whatever. And there's also been empirical facts. Ashkenazi Jews are one of the most isolated genetically groups in the world. Similarly, if you go to Africa today, the idea of blackness is confusing to a lot of people who are in a country with very specific tribes and languages. And right. pretty, pretty confusing in, in the U.S. too. I'm first generation American. My ancestry within a couple of generations is Scottish and Jamaican by way of Africa. But I like the macro and micro aspect of this. Um, and, you know, Adam, I'm a libertarian. I have some experience with the Austrian School of Economics. I suspect you know <laughs> what that is. 
Um, yeah, although and that too is different. Like if you're a Menger Mies guy, that's different from being a Hayek guy. Yeah, I'm, me too. Mies kind of loses me a little bit, if I'm honest. Hayek is Hayek is more my guy. Yeah, especially uh, use of knowledge in society. I think I probably refer to that paper like maybe once a year. I will pick it up and reread it. Oh, me too. That's a profound fundamental text for me as well. There's a way in which like my ideas about identity and race are informed by that work. What I wonder about oftentimes is if when we think about this particular kind of macro framework of, say, like whiteness and whether or not Jews are white, for example, yeah. there's a real question about how useful that particular framework is with respect to particular goals, say, improving the quality of healthcare, improving the quality of schools, ensuring that as many people as possible are, are lifted out of bad situations into better situations. There's a real question as to whether or not it's efficacious to invoke race in those contexts, although we never ask it, even with respect to something that has become completely bound up with race, like criminal justice reform, for example. We, we almost never talk about issues of police misconduct outside of the confines of race. And I mentioned earlier that analogies are necessary and that we will have to use them but there is a very real sense in which some analogies are better than others. And in order for them to be valuable, we must be aware of the things that they are revealing to us and the things that they're obscuring. There's a real possibility, <laughs> and I think it's true, that for the most part, we would be well served to not try and put everything into the confines of race. Like there's a real sense in which race isn't merely a social construct. It's an ideological commitment that we make and that we are actively deciding to reinforce whether or not it's necessary. Um, and there's a presumption that it's absolutely necessary in all kinds of elite institutions at a very high level and that is being disseminated down. And there are lots of Americans who they maybe haven't given this a great deal of sophisticated thought. They're baby boomers. They're people who grew up listening to Michael Jackson and they remember like it didn't matter if you were black or white. And they're uncomfortable with the new paradigm that's saying, no, no, no. In some respects, all that matters is if you're black or white. Every issue, even student loan forgiveness, is not just best understood with respect to racial justice and equity. It is only really understood with respect to racial justice and equity. And I think that that, it's not just wrong. I think that it is a dangerous distraction. It's a sinkhole. If your goal is only to achieve racial equity, the implications of that are pretty grotesque. We have too many people that look like you here already, so need not apply. Or there are two kids who might give this a spot at the advanced school the only way to make that decision is on the basis of what you happen to look like. I know that that's not compatible with my values. And I don't think most people are actually contemplating the fact that that is kind of implicitly a part of the new paradigm that's been ushered in in recent years. And that's been kind of wholeheartedly embraced. And I think, honestly, with genuinely good intentions by many people. But that's also creating understandable concern amongst lots and lots of Americans. And they're not all just white people who are in positions of privilege, who feel threatened by change, who are concerned about the fact that now, finally, persons of color, 
a phrase I, I kind of hate, um, are able to speak out. Some of them are just like, hey, wait a minute. I thought we, I thought we understood each other. I thought that I was allowed to just be Kevin and you were allowed to just be Michael and we could agree on our inherent individual value and the fact that we were going to try our best to treat each other equally, even if we can't do that perfectly. That is, um, yeah, there's so much there that I found really important and worth commenting on. I mean, one, there's a whole Hayek line that I'm wondering if we lose the audience, if we go too far down, but because I'm like, no, oh, no, Hayek's on my side. But no, um, no, do it, do it, do it. Well, yeah, let me explain what, what my thought process is there. So Friedrich von Hayek, Austrian economist who actually did much of his formative, formative work in London at the London School of Economics. And, you know, I have this fantasy, he and John Maynard Keynes, who's sort of the you know, generally, if, if you're talking to people who care about economic ide ideology, which is a small number, but they're sort of Keynesians versus Austrians. And then Chicago school is sort of in the middle and each side thinks Chicago school secretly on the other side. On the, on, anyway, mm -hmm. I mean, basically this get anytime you hear anyone talking about like, should we cancel student debt or should we raise taxes? Like it sort of comes down to Keynes versus Hayek. I mean, they, they really are two formative intellectuals that define so much of our public policy space. And they were friendly. And it seems like they maybe agreed with each other more than people realize, but they, um, Keynes got really distracted by the Depression, World War II, and they stopped hanging out. And then Keynes died young. And so there's sort of a fantasy that there's some, or at least I've had the fantasy that there's some synthesis view. But the thing that I get from Hayek, which he wrote as kind of anti-socialist. And when you hear this, like, you know, half the things you hear on Fox News are kind of bastardizations of this core thought is mm. you can never have a small group of people deciding because they just don't have enough information. You know, if, if I'm going to buy some paper and there was like a big forest fire, um, the paper price will go up just naturally if we let it. But if the government starts saying, no, everyone should have paper, we're going to lower the price of paper, it's just going to mess the whole thing up and you'll either have too much or too little or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I guess that to me starts to become the question, like just intellectually, if we could measure white privilege, let's say we got to the point where we kind of agree on what it is and we figure out a way to measure it. And it is a big thing. Then that is going to be a force that you have to reckon with one way or another, I think even if in any, in any individual case it isn't. So, so one thing a lot of economists point to is inherited wealth. And we think of inherited wealth like the Rockefellers or whatever, but the vast majority of inheritances, like I received my, I had very working class grandparents, but when my grandfather died, I got 50 grand and so did his four grandkids. And 10 to 80 grand can be life changing. You can buy a down payment on a house, you can develop a path. And we just know that whether or not this is a valid group, mm -hmm. white people have a, you know, factoring for the size of the population have way, 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 way more. And so that's just going to be a factor. I got to take risks. I got to worry less. And it's not that I had a guaranteed, like I'm going to be some rich kid no matter what. I've had to work really hard my whole life. But if we just arbitrarily chose every lefty from now on gets 50 grand on their 28th birthday or something, like we're going to see different outcomes among lefties. So, so I guess one question is, is that true? Like, is that measurable? Is the very idea of blackness, say, mm -hmm. a coherent enough idea that we can say, yes, that's a group and, you know, the other group has privileges they don't have, something like that. So that's one question worth exploring, I guess, maybe, maybe not. 
And then if we do decide, yes, actually, there is a thing. If we divide America between white people and people of color, the white people just have a this list of things, inherited wealth, access to property, access to loans, like given the same factors, they're going to get a lower, a, a bigger loan at a lower interest rate, et cetera, et cetera. These structural factors, if we find out that is a real thing, and I guess my claim would be, I think it is, what do we do about it? You know, and, and do we not talk about it? Do we talk about it? Do we have to have structural solutions that are equally unfair to make up for the structure? You know, to me, that that's where the conversation goes. So I guess my question for you guys is, is where, where in that chain do I kind of lose you? Like, do you think it doesn't exist? Well, I think where I, where I get lost, not by you, but in the mainstream racial discourse that obtains right now is where that just becomes oversimplified into a matter of black and white or, or white and people of color. Because what do you mean by black? Like if we're talking about have the uh, American descendants of slaves been denied the ability to transmit intergenerational wealth? Yeah, I agree with that. And that's a specific group of people. It has nothing to do with the daughter of Nigerian doctors who gets into Harvard because she's considered black. And then mm -hmm. we talk about, you know, discrepancies in black and white wealth um, when Nigerians outperform whites as a group and let alone Asians out earn whites as a group. And are they people of color? And we kind of have to, when we do this racialized discourse, we, we don't know what to, where to put Asians because it messes everything up. But yeah, I think that I would love to have a conversation about how specifically the descendants of Africans who were enslaved in America and through recent decades have been denied the ability to own homes and, and pass them on to their children. I mean, the most persuasive piece of writing I have encountered in this whole contemporary era of, of racial reckoning is The Case for Reparations by ta Coates. That spoke to me because my dad lived those experiences. He couldn't pass on a home. And my mom, who's from a white family that I never thought of, just like you mentioned, I never thought of as being particularly privileged, uh, did receive uh, a su surprisingly, you know, still modest, but more than she expected when her parents died. Um, and my father, you know, his, his people were unable to, to do those things. And there is something structural about that. And I think we could have a much better conversation if we talked about things that the government allowed to happen to specific groups of people in specific places and, and didn't mystify it all in the language of blood and skin hmm. and capital B blackness and, and, and monolithic blackness and monolithic whiteness in the way that kind of, I guess, is just easier for people to wrap their heads around today. And like Camille said, a lot of people certainly mean very well, but just don't devote themselves to thinking about all of the ways in which when you talk about how black people have it harder in the United States, what do you mean by black and who specifically you're talking about and how long have they been here and what does it mean to give a leg up to, I don't want to keep beating up on it, but what does it mean to give a leg up to a Nigerian daughter of doctors based on race? What does that really mean? Yeah. Yeah. To answer the question briefly and perhaps in a slightly different way, I, I certainly concur with the, the obvious, I think, fact that it has been less likely for people whose ancestors were enslaved in the Americas and who suffered through the various deprivations of the Reconstruction, Jim Crow era, to amass wealth that they could pass on, on average, right? 
But I also think that there's a very real sense in which we don't necessarily know how to fix those problems really well. That attempts to remediate poverty, attempts to redress historic injustices, and to perhaps account for these inequities in history, sometimes they can work and sometimes they can have unintended consequences and create all kinds of bad outcomes that we don't expect. And for me, I have a challenge in that my, my own ancestors, some of them were enslaved and would probably fit that bill, but also I'm a first generation American and my grandmother and grandfather came to America. My mom was able to come here on a green car because my grandmother was here. My grandmother was a domestic worker. Uh, my grandfather was an illiterate dock worker. I didn't get much from them in terms of material support. Certainly my mother and, and my dad uh, took care of me, my stepdad, but I did get the opportunity to be here. And there is something really important about an equal protection under the law and a basic framework for the institutions that allow us to build prosperity and to participate in the market and to have a stable government, et cetera. And I worry about two things. I worry about the possibility of instituting programs that kind of backfire and have unintended consequences. And I also worry about uh, ideological perspective that endangers a lot of the imperfectly meritocratic systems that do exist, that do actually allow us to create wealth and prosperity, that do allow us to have an equal legal framework, even if it isn't perfectly racially, demographically anyways, equitable in the sense that all of the outcomes are kind of predictably the same for someone going into, uh, say, a courtroom and, and getting a particular outcome or something like that, which is probably the wrong analogy to draw in that case. But I think that the, the point is, is perhaps sufficiently well-made. When you read the economic literature and how do you make a bunch of people who aren't doing well <laughs> on whatever metric, education, health, mm -hmm. the, and how do you make them do better? There's not a proud tradition of, oh, we nailed it. There is a proud tradition right. <laughs> of people thinking we nailed it and like the World Bank right. building these massive dams all over the place that destroy communities and then have no positive impact or microloans turned out to be like a big fad mm -hmm. that didn't really go anywhere. You know, I, I often say like the field of economics was essentially started with Adam Smith's an inquiry into the causes of the wealth of nations. And he was asking this question, basically, why are some countries doing well and some aren't? Why are some people doing well, some aren't? And we still don't really have an answer. The best mm -hmm. answer right this minute is from Raj Chetty at Harvard that just moving, like literally like get people from Baltimore to suburban Montgomery County, get people like mm. that. That is when, because there's actually like natural experiments where people with very similar backgrounds are, I mean, if you look at immigrants, you know, there's a selection bias people chose to leave so you're not really doing a blind right. but when but there are certain housing programs or others where you're effectively taking a large population and randomly pulling people out and that's to other places that's the one thing that seems to work but yes i would agree that most public policy is pretty disastrous i i did want to shift to like you know, I've been the, let's talk about tiny aggregate impact, but I do want to talk about my personal experience because I do think that was what was on my mind when I wrote that original tweet. 
which is that, you know, I've been, you know, I've been entry level, I've been a manager, I've been, I was CEO of a podcast company that was a joint venture with Sony Music. I've had a lot of times where I'm in a room with a lot of, you know, powerful people, at least in media, um, which may or may not is probably in some ways representative, in some ways not representative. But it has seemed clear to me that whatever the background, whether someone is child of wealthy Nigerian parents or whatever, that race just is a factor among, and maybe I'm making your argument for you possibly, but um, like NPR has rather famously, I worked there for a long time, has been desperately trying to be more diversified and it just keeps sticking its foot in its mouth and creating all sorts of issues. I think I could go into specific examples, but I would say as a general rule, it seemed to me, and this is kind of a standard privilege story, but it might also be a standard anti-privilege story, that I have been seen as a reporter who could do this job or that job, and Black people are generally seen as a Black reporter. And the mm -hmm. conversation around where we're going to send them, what we're going to do with them is different. And and some of it is is fairly explicit. Some feel subtle. Like something I've really noted, I think one of the secrets of my success, genuinely, like I do actually, I'm arrogant enough to think I'm pretty good at some things and pretty bad at some other things, but I do think I have strengths and abilities that are separate from my race. But I think culturally, like I know how to fuck with my bosses in a way that make that they like. Like I know how to make dumb jokes and kind of tease them, but not actually confront power. And I was working with a young black guy from a from Oakland who's who's from a much more working class. And it that was just a I just noticed it. He's a really good writer, really smart, really good reporter. And I felt like he didn't know how to do that. And he would mm -hmm. and 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 that's not the bosses being like, oh, he's black, let's promote him. The bosses are just like, I don't know, he's not like I think fucking with your boss conveys confidence, it conveys yeah. capability, it does all sorts of things that I just know because I grew up in a culture that allowed that. Now, there might be Asian American immigrants or whatever who who also struggle with that. You know, that that that's not necessarily a white black thing at all. So you know, there's the aggregate argument, but then there is just my felt experience is no matter where you're from, if we went into a meeting with the people around the Atlantic or the New Yorker or the New York Times or NPR or, or for that matter, JP Morgan or whatever, Procter and Gamble, like I, my meeting is just different from your meeting. That just feels like I've experienced that enough that 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 feels doesn't mean I get the job and you don't, or it doesn't mean you get the job just because like, it doesn't mean there's nothing else happening. Like your actual experience, your skills, your, your, your thoughts, your ideas all matter. I'm not saying this is the only thing that matters, but it just, it feels like as a buddy of mine was saying the other day, you look at Katanji Brown Jackson and she has played life on the hardest setting. And you look at Brett Kavanaugh and he's played life on the easiest setting. And that's not even talking about what their jurisprudence, prudence is or whatever. It's just, it feels to me anyway, like that's a real felt fact that I've experienced in the world. And I'm trying to decide or trying to understand, like, do you disagree with me that that isn't happening? Or do you agree with me that that is happening? But the reason it's happening is because of people like me saying, hey, we really got to do something <laughs> about this privilege thing. So let's think a lot about people's race. 
Maybe you start by saying it's not your fault. <laughs> it's not narrowly your fault. Yeah. Anyways, I don't know, Thomas. You got any any immediate thoughts? Well, I don't because I think that Adam raises some very honest points that I think oftentimes people are uncomfortable even acknowledging. Mm. Um, and but then I would complicate it just by saying that I think that I have a very different kind of interaction in some of those spaces than 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 other people that are racially in the same box on the census as I would be put in. I think that some of it has to do with, I guess, what Bourdieu would call, you know, codes and whether you went to certain schools and learned certain humor or, mm -hmm. you know, there are ways that there's, there's body language, even on the level of body language, how you hold your, your body and move and walk, all of these signals that um, I think actually can be loosely connected to socioeconomic and racial background, but are not necessarily mm -hmm. the same thing. Right. And I noticed that a lot of Asian Americans have been on Twitter more vocal about how they don't fully fit into that type of culture in the workplace. There was a piece or a tweet thread going around a year ago or so that went really viral about how, I think it was an Asian American, so they just didn't fit into like the, they're evangelical Christians, but they didn't fit into the, the, the church going culture because they couldn't do this type of banter that they equated with a kind of whiteness that was, that was a way of signaling that you're part of the group. And so many uh, non-whites got involved on the thread. And then a lot of whites also got involved saying that, like, I didn't think about that before, but it's so true. And, and, and this is something that we do. And it is a way of, you know, whether you can do it or not signals whether you're part of the thing or not. Um, and so it's really true what Adam says. And I think it can be very tough for some types of, specifically some types of black writers and media to feel comfortable in some of those spaces that you're talking about. But it has not been my experience, so so I tend to struggle to to fully lean into the racialization of that. There's there's a lot going on, and I've lived on both sides of the ways that you signal. My first book is about that. is about learning in college, or just realizing in college that so many factors went into how my professors engaged with me and looked at me, and some of it had to do with how I dressed, and some of it had to do with how I sat, and mm -hmm. and and there were like modifications I could make to my self-presentation they gave me extremely different experiences in that classroom space which which is not exactly the same as the corporate world spaces you're talking about but is is you know a launch pad for those and has some of the same dynamics i'm really talking too long right here with that's my initial reaction is that you're talking about something real but it's not it's not quite enough to just say it's racial i agree with that yeah. very much so and yeah. also I mean, like the earlier point, there's sort of, is it real? And then there's, what do you do about it? <laughs> that's exactly, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the phrase that comes to mind is like cultural aptitude. And yeah. it is, it is definitely the case that young kid from, from Oakland who went to a state school and didn't have a certain kind of pedigree, isn't going to thrive in those spaces, but neither is someone who did have all those advantages, but is kind of on the spectrum and just has a difficult time reading people. And I know a lot of people like that, actually. I know a lot of very successful people like that as well. Generally, they're kind of self-made. <laughs> they're VCs now, that sort of thing. But it is definitely the case that a lot of the conversation then becomes about, well, what do we do about this fact that mm -hmm. it can be harder for certain kinds of people to thrive in these different circumstances? And it isn't narrowly about race. It could be any number of things that make it 
so that you don't have the tools to be able to, to be successful there. And the general approach that's been adopted has been, we have to create inclusive and equitable spaces and we have to be demographically representative. And we got to just like, that is it. Like, that's the cornerstone. That's all we think about. And there's a real sense in which you start to do that, but all of the same obstacles like actually exist in some respects, they're still there. And certain people still don't have access. So it's great for a certain kind of elite person who get bumped up from like middle manager to super duper executive on account of their happening to have the, the tools and also being black. And I suppose that's fine, but I don't know that that's actually remedying the broader systemic societal challenges that people actually think they're talking about. But, but relatedly, I'm also thinking about the bizarre cultural incentives that we create when we focus on inclusion and demographic benchmarks in particular, because for some of those journalists, the, the black journalists who were mentioned a moment ago, there's this kind of learned proclivity to pursue a career as a black journalist, to think of yourself primarily in those terms. I've, I've been astonished by the number of friends that I have from university, very bright people, successful in a number of different fields, but who over the course of the last two years have become affirmatively black. Mm -hmm. Talk more about this, think more about this, post about it, the, the hashtags on their Instagram posts. And it, it seems to me that there is necessarily a potential downside to that. It actually makes you perhaps more isolated. It makes you more likely to imagine that you're encountering discrimination, whether or not it exists, that there are microaggressions, whether or not they're there. And I think for individuals, for institutions, for a society broadly, like becoming hypersensitive to, hyper aware of, hyper interested in race is obviously fraught. And again, doesn't necessarily fix the, the, the sort of stated problem we're trying to resolve. I think a much better approach is to think about how we make our institutions more open and non-exclusionary as opposed to necessarily demographically representative of the, of the population, how we actually make them institutions that are more about merit. And to the extent we're worried about excluding people from materially like disadvantaged backgrounds. And I, I say material, not in a, in a guttural economic sense, but in a, in a real tangible sense. And I don't mean disadvantage, which this is even, even this is an example of it. Disadvantage has literally become synonymous with like minority. It's, it's literally become synonymous with person of color. And it's absurd. Like my children and Thomas's children are by no stretch of the imagination disadvantaged. They're children of privilege, they're elites, um, and they will have all manner of advantages over children of any imaginable, ba imaginable background in almost any circumstance, which doesn't suggest that they won't have real problems too. Um, it's possible that I could just have some difficulty connecting with one of my kids that they don't feel sufficiently loved. Sounds like they really annoy you sometimes. So that, no, no, that's just oh, you. <laughs> sometimes, I've, yeah. as I've said, best and worst people I've ever met. Right. <laughs> but you've touched on something where in a cynical way, as a longtime business reporter, like what is the function of some of the DEI stuff. Now, I'm, I think I'm probably way more pro-DEI than you guys are, so I'm not, um, uh -huh. uh, the last thing I want is anyone to think I agree with you on anything, but... Um, but <laughs> <laughs> That's for your best, it's in your best interest. Yeah. Really. Who is that serving? So 
like I could say knowing NPR fairly well, although I left a decade ago, but I knew it fairly well for a long time. And having worked in other institutions, and certainly you look at higher education, it's not all that unlike the Southern strategy of the Republican Party, where it was like, we don't actually want to change racial dynamics. We just know that suburban white women don't like us getting too racist. It turned out they were more okay with it than anyone realized. But um, so we have to pretend. And and like NPR really does have an existential crisis right now. I'm just using it as one institution, but universities and others where their, their argument is we are good for society, but they are largely serving the people who least need information products these mm-hmm. days, like the, the, you know, their, their audience is overwhelmingly college educated white professionals. And maybe you could, you know, they used to argue in the nineties, like sure in New York, Chicago, those people have access to stuff, but you know, there's people in Idaho who need access to a good radio show, but now, you know, with podcasting, et cetera, there really is nobody in America who doesn't have access to as much classical music or news and talk mm-hmm. and and so I see, a, you know, NPR, I believe, has diversifying its staff and its audience as its number one strategic goal. And I think that is, I, I think there are definitely real, uh, authentic people of good faith who truly want that. And I think it's also in their interest. It is in their financial, like in the mm-hmm. crudest kind of like, if they want to continue as an organization or they want to grow they need to achieve at least the performance of this to justify the funding they get. And, and the audience they need to convince are not people of color. It, it, it is, you know, people in Congress, it's donors, it's other, it, it, it. So, and I do think you see a lot of that, a very cynical, or, or even cynical might be too strong, just like an egg, like crap, our company's about to go out of business. We better figure this thing out. That being said, when I ran my company, I noted, you know, we went from zero to 25 employees very quickly. And I noted, like, I've been in radio since the early 90s, when at least, like, produced documentary radio was all white. Like, the first few, I just naturally, I reached out to my friends, I asked them to reach out to their friends. And and it felt gross to me that I'm, you know... It, it truly is like people make fun of Oberlin. It is amazing the percentage of like prominent public radio people who went to Oberlin specifically or like mm-hmm. four other schools that are like Oberlin. And I was like, I don't want that. I just gut sense don't want that. But also I think that's a bad, like that group is the group that's most overserved. If we want to grow our audience, like that's, we're just going to have to cannibalize from other podcasts. And if I found it a, it was easy to make the commitment. We didn't hire DEI consultants or set any like quotas or anything like that. It was just, yes, let's diversify the pool. Let's be, but it still remained challenging because history strengthens itself again and again. And, um, and I guess that would be a, a question is what, like, I do feel confident that if I said, we're just not going to think about race, it would have been all white people just because that who, you know, all of the, in a fast growing industry, like almost by definition, the people with the most experience are the people who've been there, right. you know, blah, blah, blah. It was a small pop. So I just don't know what to do about that. And I'm not convinced if the solution is, let's just not talk about it. Let's not think about it. I don't know that that feels good to me. 
let's only think about it definitely doesn't feel good to me. Yeah. But but I, I think part of the, the opportunity here, though, is to also think about it differently. I don't see why there shouldn't be as many diverse approaches to diversity within an institution. So you want to talk about racial demographics? I'm going to cringe, but fine, have your fun. But please, someplace along the line, let's have a conversation about ideological diversity as well. And my suspicion is, and I'd, I'd be curious to know if in those public radio circles, there was ever much conversation about ensuring that there was a sufficient amount of ideological diversity, that there were you know, a few other people who might be able to not just talk about Hyatt. Yeah, no, that was an obsession of mine. That was a real obsession with mine. I've been libertarian curious, like I'm definitely not a libertarian, but I'm, <laughs> I'm libertarian influenced. And, and I used to say all the time, like, I don't know anyone at NPR. Now I'm not, I don't know that that's still the case, but I was like, no one here uh -huh. even has a relative fighting any of the wars and we should, mm -hmm. we should mm -hmm. have people, we should have veterans. We should have yeah. people. I remember with the gay marriage, you know, I'm very pro gay marriage. I grew up in Greenwich village in mm -hmm. the 1970s. I grew up in a very gay world. And I have no problem with that. And I support gay marriage. But I was like, we don't even have anyone, I think, who has relatives who are against gay marriage. Like we're, And it's not that we need to have 50-50. I'm against the both sideism right, stuff. Right. I'm not saying we should yeah, have yeah. like a bunch of stories against gay marriage. We should just at least know. Like I, one of my best hires at my company was a young graduate of Jerry Falwell's Liberty University who had deep insight into why evangelical Christians support Trump. And he was an active evangelical Christian. He was not mm -hmm. a Trump supporter, which made it, frankly, a lot easier. But, you know, he was mm -hmm. anti-abortion. He was anti-gay marriage. He was all of those things. And it, this gets into a whole other both sides conversation, which we could have some other time, which I don't need to get into. But but I 1 million percent agree with you that that you know, there, that that the ideological um, uniformity was was deeply problematic. Um, even more so now, like how do you how do you um, mm -hmm. cover this country if you don't even have exposure to or know people? And I I'm definitely deep 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 in a like I grew up in Greenwich Village. I've worked in public radio, New York Times, and NPR, and 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 the New Yorker. Like I'm I do have these cousins that helps me have a little. And my, some of my Israeli family are super right wing. So I have a little lens into those worlds, but what would you do? You, you've hired people, right? You've had companies and you've hired people like what, I don't know. I don't have an answer how to do it. And like I said, saying, all right, let's just make sure we, the next three hires are black feels really weird and wrong. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, we definitely don't do that in, in any of the companies I'm, I'm associated but with. But equally, let's just do, let's just hire and not think about it or not. That feels wrong. Well, no, again, that's that's just it. I mean, there there are things that we think about, and and I'll say this: I, I perhaps give a little insight into the way that we talk about and think about diversity at, at the companies that I've involved with and, and organizations that I do consulting with. It, it's always a recognition that diversity is both an opportunity and a challenge. That an institution has to have a set of cultural values, and that anyone who you hire actually needs to be on board with that stuff. And they need to be able to speak the language to some degree. They need to, to be willing to work towards whatever the mission of the institution is. They need to be comfortable with whatever the parameters are with respect to kind of how we, how we work together here. Um, and at the same time, 
diversity is something that you can leverage, like the differences of perspectives and experience um, can help contribute to innovation on the team. But I think you really do need both things, which honestly for us, like if we're casting a wide net and advertising in the right places, once we're hiring on that basis, like it just, it, it really hasn't been a challenge for us to find people who both get our mission, but also offer something unique and novel to the institution with respect to their, to their background and experience. And it might be different if I was running, you know, a high powered VC firm, as opposed to kind of media related companies or something like that. Um, but I, I just don't only hire from Ivy's. <laughs> I don't have to. Um, and there are plenty of people who haven't gone to university at all. Um, but I'll tell you like what wouldn't be an adequate substitute for that dynamic that I just described. And that's saying, well, what we really need around here is a couple more brown people with vaginas. Anyone I hire who actually fits the criteria of buying into the mission and sharing our values, like I'm going to hire them because I think they're the best possible candidate for the gig and they can make meaningful contributions to the team. And I'm, I'm less concerned with what it looks like if I know that we're adhering to that kind of standard. And I know that we're pulling from a diverse enough pool to allow us to be sufficiently dynamic. But that's, that's my, own, my own kind of particular predilection. Like I, I, I don't have any interest whatsoever in the ratio or percentage of kind of blacks or Asians or whites who, who work for a company that I'm involved with. It's not the way that I think about whether or not we're kind of in a healthy position. I'm trying, yeah, that I, I, this is something I need to, and I'm not hiring anyone right now. I don't, yeah. I hope to never have to hire people, although I probably will. I'm, I'm working on a project where I probably will, but I think it becomes challenging when there's like a narrow set of skills. And I realize this, I have to actually change the definition of jobs. It doesn't mean so that I can get black people it's that if I'm defining a job as knowing how to edit audio in Pro Tools is like a prereq, which is what I thought, like we're using Pro Tools. I don't want to, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there really is a, it's a very small pool. There's a small yeah. pool of people and, and, and frankly, every podcast company, you know, is trying to hire from that pool and is trying the to hire person. diverse. Yeah. <laughs> So I've, I've literally, I've, I've had that literal exact problem. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, which is, I'm okay with it, but if I'm like, all right, I'm going to hire people with a perspective and I'm going to teach them pro tools. Like I'm okay with that. Or I'm going to rethink how we handle pro tools. Maybe some people are just editors and some people are more mm -hmm. producers. I'm okay with that, but it just, it yeah. is a big thought. Like it's a, yeah. And I do think, by the way, these are the thoughts Again, I haven't been at NPR for a while, but I did not experience that. They were they were doing the last minute, like mm -hmm. the last ten people we hired were white, so the next three have to be black. I mean, it was almost that crude, and um, and that's yeah. not clearly not a solution. I'm not sure I can differentiate between that and tokenism. Yes, I think it is. Yes, Just, who wants who wants to do that to someone? <laughs> it's it's awful. I don't want to be hired on those yeah. bases. Um. So just and, and I know we probably. We've been going a long time, but let me, let me just, one other perspective that I just want to raise, which, you know, again, I sent that tweet fairly quickly. I wasn't like, it wasn't like the culmination of some thought 
deep thought process. But I think what I was thinking is something like this, that in my experience, most black people have had the experience of being treated like a black person <laughs> that, that, and I feel like you got, in other words, like you've been in rooms where you're aware that that is the mind frame of whoever you're talking to. I feel like I buy into the idea that a lot of white people don't realize that they are also treated like white people a lot of times, that that is a factor in our lives. And, and I, I feel like I've gotten jobs that I was not, I mean, I got a major job and found out much later that the people hiring me literally had no idea what my background, like they had not read my work. They hadn't. And I was like, that was because I'm like a white Jew with a beard and they just, I look like a guy who can write about economics. You know, it wasn't, I do think I'm good at it by the way. <laughs> like I'm, I, but, but it was, and, and I've dealt with a lot of people who are mediocre white guys. That, to me, that is a real phenomenon. Mediocre white guys who've kind of just floated through life without bringing it, without hustling, without. And so mm -hmm. I think a feeling I have is like, a thing I can do, I can't solve racism, but a thing I can do is just say, hey, I see, I see it. I see, like, it took me a long time. I didn't see it for a long time. And now I do see it. And, and I want to just say like, hey guys, like other white people, like you should see it. It doesn't mean it's the only thing. It doesn't mean all your, it's not some binary thing. I think, you know, a vast majority of the responses to my original tweet treated it as if I was saying it's a binary thing. Either you've got privilege and everything's easy or you don't have privilege and everything's hard. Obviously, I'm not saying that, but bearing witness as a white guy to other white guys, like I actually feel, and maybe I shouldn't, I'm genuinely like thinking about it. But I think I, at some gut level, I was like, yeah, that that's a cool thing for me to do. That's like a thing I can do that's valuable is to say, yeah, I, I have, I'm aware of that. Yeah, you raise a, a, a really valid point, which is that a lot of white people, um, certainly until recently, never even considered themselves to have race. Everybody else had race and whiteness is this kind of invisible neutrality um, and, and, and the norm and everything else is a further and nearer deviation from the norm. Um, and white people are racialized in a society that's um, got its history and that creates and reproduces race and racial hierarchies. That's 100% true. It gets complicated though, because I think I've also learned that I've been hired for and gotten extraordinary opportunities because I was raced as a black person and, and that had little to do with what I thought were my skills and what I was bringing to the table as an individual. And uh, I gotta say that that, you know, not to go full Clarence Thomas with it, but that also, that can be quite painful. And I don't know how to make up for that because, you know, there are things going on in the culture now that are a correction to what you're talking about, Adam. Like if we take uh, one of the places you've worked in, The New Yorker, I mean, there was um, in recent years such a fast tracking into staff writer positions of, of so many writers of color, you know, write a couple of pieces for the website. It's only you're a staff writer um, in ways that, you know, a lot of these people are talented, but sometimes from what I understand, and not to just use the New Yorker at several of these media um, companies, um, the fact is that people were being elevated to, to, to work that they weren't, they weren't nice with the pro tools yet. 
And, and, and that, I don't know what that does. There's a lot of white mediocrity. I'm very familiar with that, but I don't know what that does to solve racism when they're, let's use this example, when there are staff writers walking around with a lot of experience on a certain skill set, and someone else becomes a staff writer and is, and is being kind of handheld. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that introduces very complicated dynamics and then it also introduces suspicion towards their very talented non-white uh, staff writers at The New Yorker. Um, and then everybody kind of um, has this kind of stigma of suspicion on them. <laughs> That's a conversation about affirmative action that we could get into. I mean, these are complicated. These... <laughs> Well-intentioned solutions can have these ramifications that are harmful to individuals and that like can actually um, intensify racial feeling and frustration. Mm -hmm. and, and yeah, Camille maybe has thought more systematically about solutions than I have. I, I, I'm certainly aware of how uncomfortable it can, it can make, every, how fraught it can make everything in the workplace as well. And I don't think that the solution is to go back to a time of just, you know, um, white mediocrity, like you say. I, I, I think Camille really raised a point that I want to maybe finish with uh, and, and I want to sit with for myself, which is that um, we need to um, not say that we're just going to ignore race or say that we're going to obsess about race, but we need to actually try to think in novel ways about um, these solutions. Why is it that everything from Nike to Microsoft to Harvard to, um, to Goldman Sachs, why is it that everybody does DEI in exactly the same way with the exact same vocabulary, the exact same set of solutions. We, we, we drastically need, we have real problems and we drastically need novel thinking um, and new solutions to address some of the things that I think we all see here. And I, I really do mm -hmm. think that um, this has been such a beneficial conversation for me to have uh, with both of you, with you, Adam, for sure. And also, I just, I intuited that Camille was like the perfect person to host the conversation. And I really feel that um, I just have a lot of food for thought here. Uh, and, and, and I don't, I certainly don't think I came into the conversation. Oh, I'm leaving the conversation exactly the same. Yeah, me too. I know maybe in a month we get back together. And it's nice to hear what you're saying, because, you know, I don't want to, I think oftentimes people like me and Camille are accused of downplaying racism, but, you know, things that you say, I know that those are experiences. I, I tend to think a lot of progress has been made, but I know that black people were not just um, innocently kept out of rooms. They were, mm -hmm. you know, there was real racism uh, and there, I, there must be still today where, where, where white people don't want to work with black people, where, where, where jokes are made about uh, non-white people, where there is a lack of respect. Yeah. That's, that's real what you're talking about. And I don't want to be in a position of being, you, you know, using my ancestry to shut up or to try to talk over um, white people who are, who are trying seriously to be part of the solution to this, this real problem that's plagued us. Uh, so I, I, I just, I, I thank you for, for, for first for your tweet, starting the conversation and then for sitting down and engaging us yeah. like this uh, and with such an open mind. Yeah. I found it really valuable for me as well. It's not, we definitely haven't an ended on, all right, here's our proclamation. Here's the manifesto, but, um, but it's given me a lot to think <laughs> about a lot. Um, just a couple of quick thoughts. So one thing is I do think the directionality feels a little anxiety provoking for me. I, I have fairly little exposure to strong Trump supporters, but in my family, I have some, and some of them have moved from 
never openly being racist to openly being racist in a way that, you know, and, and that there does seem to be a new norm in parts of our country. So that freaks, that does terrify me. I don't know what to say about that. Um, number two, just on, on the affirmative action, I mean, that, that I think is what I was trying to get at is I am very familiar and have had that forever in my career. Like I, I entered journalism in 1992 and affirmative action already was, and but we don't have, yeah, but there's also a lot of shitty white people who don't deserve their jobs. And and I feel like that that's a little bit, I want to bear witness to like, <laughs> we suck too. A lot of, like, there's a lot of people who don't, who are not in position. I think we can all agree on that. Yeah, yeah. We'll give, shout, although shout out to mediocre people of, of all backgrounds. Yeah, If you don't know any any mediocre persons of color, I can I can introduce yeah, you yeah. to a few. Yeah, they, no, we, we got They exist in abundance. And uh, plenty of them who I wish were at least mediocre. <laughs> yeah, this this has been a really great conversation. I'm I'm delighted that we were able to do it. I I know we haven't we haven't solved all of the problems, but I do think that there's been some interesting perspectives offered that will hopefully be able to cross a couple of transoms and get to populations that wouldn't necessarily have heard them before. It's interesting. I know that when I end up having conversations on the podcast or in other contexts with people who with whom I have strong disagreements, where there's an expectation that we'll get into a room together and I'll just be punching them in their face, trying to destroy them. There's there's a disappointment on some people's part. Like, why didn't you? Yeah. You should have gone for the jugular. When he said that one thing, why didn't you tell him? And honestly, I just get so much more out of exchanges like this. And I don't actually think that the fisticuffs, that the knifings change minds nearly as much or more important than change minds help to surface some of the really important stuff that we might not be paying enough attention to. And I appreciate you both for giving me the opportunity to do this with you. And, and I hope we'll be able to do it again in some other context, both on and off the air, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I think already, like I was thinking of it as one thing, like, oh, we disagree on this one thing. And I think in this conversation, it's already like at least three or four or five things. And that's really helpful. And that, yeah, it's, it's this has been a profound help in me thinking about this. Then we could do cancel culture and really yell at each other. But... <laughs> I hate that phrase. I hate it. I hate it. Um, but it's definitely a thing. If you're not already a member, I hope that you will go to wethefifth.substack.com, listen to other past episodes, and that you'll give us some feedback on this particular episode, that you'll give us some thoughts on who else we might want to talk to later. And as always, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be able to share. I'm delighted to be able to you know, have a, a platform with so many really thoughtful people who are genuinely interested in, in other people's perspectives. And thanks to Adam, and thanks to Thomas for reaching out and agreeing to do this. The fifth column.